Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. It's really nice to welcome you to Channel 4 as Editorial Intelligence doesn't live in Channel 4, so it feels terribly grown up to welcome you to someone else's building. It's slightly spooky timing on this day to be discussing the network nation and all things internet because right at this moment, about five minutes down this road, Julian Assange's hearing is being heard on the WikiLeaks and slightly less momentous in global terms but in UK terms reasonably momentous was the tweet this afternoon, this morning, that Ian Dale is giving up blogging and as he set the original bar for political blogging in the UK. So I just throw that hook into the mix for you. For those of you who've not been with us all day, the Network Nation is being very kindly hosted, principally for Race Online, the campaign for plurality and access to the internet. Our partner hosts include Microsoft and Channel 4, Mumsnet, Detica, London Philharmonia, and Edelman, who are behind this particular session. And I'm going to hand over to Stefan Stern, formerly, recently, of the Financial Times, now Director of Strategy at Edelman and Professor, visiting professor at Cass Business School, to introduce his panel. And I will dip in and out an MC in between. The hashtag, for those of you tweeting, is networked nation and if and when anyone gets any news on the Assange trial I know Lucy Huberman would like it. Thank you Stefan. Thank you very much uh, Julia. Good afternoon to everybody. Uh, Thanks for coming. Uh, We're taking part in a session called Digital Innovation What's New Now? It's compulsory uh, of course in a session on digital innovation and modernity and new to have uh, a a sagging grey-haired man uh, leading the conversation. But fortunately, we've got some uh, vibrant uh, talent on the panel to actually tell us what's what's really new and what's going to be exciting. Uh, We've got four speakers in the conventional way. They're going to say a few words each to the topic. I think, as you'll see, on a wide range of of territories and contexts. And then there'll be some time for questions from you. So do start... um, working on those and uh, thinking up what you want to say. I'm going to just briefly introduce the speakers now in the order that they'll be speaking. Uh, next to me on my immediate left is uh, Nico MacDonald, I'm sure known to many of you, guru, writer, innovator. He has a mag- magic effect on the lighting system. Um, and uh, not least, the author of this wonderful thing, which I have actually purchased with my own money. And journalists don't often say that. This is Big Potatoes. This is the London Manifesto for Innovation, which is put together by a range of uh, scoundrels and uh, ne'er-do-wells, including Nico. And it's a very feisty document and well worth five pounds. Five pounds. Five pounds of your money. I parted with five pounds. I suggest you do too. So thank you, uh, Nico. After Nico, uh, next to him, we'll have Richard Slaney, who is head of digital at the Philharmonia orchestra and uh, a range of exciting uh, live and other activities traveling around the world and Richard will tell you more about it. I won't pretend to understand it. I'll wait for him to uh, explain it to you. Uh, The more perceptive ones of you will have worked out that the person next to me here must be 
Lucy Huberman, Professor Lucy Huberman. She's a real professor. I'm a, a visiting one. Lucy's a real professor at the University of Warwick, Director of Digital Media and Innovation at what I used to call, and some of you will know as the Warwick Manufacturing Group, but that's far too old-fashioned for 2010, 2011. It is now known as WMG, and I hope they haven't abandoned manufacturing altogether. I don't suppose you have, being the University of Warwick, but there are all sorts of exciting digital, uh, innovative things going on there. Lucy will be known to you also from the Innovation Unit at the BBC for several years. Finally, just in time, ex machina, Ben Hammersley, writer, technologist, owner of fantastic facial hair, He's editor-at-large at Wired. He travels the world. He's head of digital for the advertising agency Six. He's a man of mystery. He apparently advises the government on something called post-digital geopolitics, which just shows you that the world is getting even more complicated than perhaps you, uh, you realised. Uh, geo, post-digital geopolitics. It was a wonderful thing, uh, the English language, wasn't it? It was what we missed. Uh, most importantly of all, via Twitter, Ben revealed the other day, that he is like me, and perhaps like some of you too, especially at this time of the year, a keen fan of toasted crumpets. Now, this is what Twitter really is for, in my opinion. It's these sort of insights uh, into life that we value most of all. There they are, and here we go, as Robin Day used to say. Uh, Nico, please start us off for a few minutes on digital innovation. What's new now? Okay, very good. Uh, I should just say that, uh, like Rupert Murdoch, uh, the Big Potatoes group believes that uh, IP should not be uh, free, so that's why five pounds for the manifesto if anyone wants to buy one afterwards. Um, so, uh, but I just wanted to start off just talk, uh, talking a bit about what, what innovation is, which is uh, a big potato theme, naturally. Uh, and uh, I, I think what innovation is has been devalued to some extent in, in recent years. And innovation is not old wine in new bottles. Uh, it's about creating something which is qualitatively different from what existed before, which is not to say that all innovation takes place that way. Innovation can happen incrementally, and between large-scale innovations, lots of small-scale incremental changes take place which are very beneficial. Uh, but we, I think, need to get what innovation is uh, in scale, if you like. Uh, and the invention of the Internet was a major innovation. Uh, the invention of Twitter, which built on many, many layers uh, above uh, the uh, TCP IP network, is useful, but not an innovation. Um, secondly, not all innovation is digital, although sitting here in Channel 4 and in the media world in which many of us operate, you would think that was the case. You wouldn't think that uh, a new machine tool in a uh, Coventry uh, car plant was an innovation, um, and we need to be aware that not everything uh, is digital, or not, or not all innovation is, is, uh, is digital. And also innovation is not just about stuff that we, the consumer, can touch. Uh, it's also about things which happen in factories, in offices, in logistics, in the physical, ugly, uh, atom-like old world. And I just want to make a, uh, an observation as well, which I'll come back to following the discussion we had on how to make a digital nation, network nation, before, is the term online, which I think is very interesting, because not only online has a physical element to it. A line is a cable, is a copper wire, is a plain old telephony service, as, uh, uh, as people knowingly talk about it and disparagingly. Um, and in fact, much of what we do online, there are no physical connections made at all. So in a way, our terminology uh, shows the, uh, the kind of uh, how old our technologies are and the ways that we think about them. And also, I think we need to think about what it means to be online. And I'll come back to the example of electricity uh, a bit later on. Uh, but essentially, uh, we talk about being online almost as if 
that means to go up to a computer on your desk and access the web, which is a very, something you do very consciously and it's a pretty bad experience generally. Uh, whereas when, I think when the internet is really successful, when those technologies are really embedded themselves, we won't know that we're online. We're not, we won't know we're using an IP network. Uh, and I think that should be our, our benchmark. Um, I think it would be interesting just to talk about some of the industries that might benefit or are benefiting from uh, internet digital technologies. And I'm segueing between the two. I think it's very difficult to say and may not be appropriate to say whether the digital is more important than the network. And I'm reading network into uh, the discussion about digital innovation. Clearly, networks couldn't exist without digital. Uh, and increasingly, things digital would be useless without the network. Uh, so one area is transport, and people in London uh, may be users of the Barclays cycle hire system, a.k.a. Boris bikes, just in case you didn't get the reference. Who uses a Barclays bike here? A few people, okay. So that's a reinvigoration of an old technology using GPS and location, using uh, electronic payment systems, using RFID tags in your little Barclays cycle hire key, using the phone and the web to renew your pass, make bookings, using data sets that come to your... Uh, we won't use the term iPhone after this, your smartphone uh, uh, from TFL. Uh, and uh, similarly, streetcar, which some people here might use as well, has reinvigorated car use and car sharing and so on, using a lot of very fundamental digital innovations. Uh, in healthcare and medicine, which I think Lucy's going to talk a little bit more about, uh, we're finally getting to the point where, without being over-technical, we've got a portable intelligent platforms around which mobile healthcare can be uh, delivered, and I think that's going to be very important, as well as the ability to sense uh, remotely uh, the status of people's uh, bodies with their participation, of course, uh, which can help in geriatric medicine, uh, recuperation, uh, and regenerative medicine, and so on. Uh, in education, it's one of the areas I think we've used uh, digital tools least imaginatively. Uh, teaching materials are shared online, remote learning and so on is becoming a possibility, particularly our kids in the UK being taught by uh, smarter people than ourselves in the Indian subcontinent and so on. Uh, in energy, intelligent networks in the home, controlling devices, optimising use of electricity on the grid. Uh, and a company that produced a lovely device, um, a USB cell um, battery that recharges from your computer uh, are developing tools to take solar panels uh, and create essentially a, a network optimized home, which I think is very interesting. In publishing, uh, with the launch of uh, non uh, well, tablet products, rebranded iPads now I learn, uh, the, we're, we're discovering, rediscovering aggregation of content, uh, although News Corp just abandoned a project in this area. Uh, and Ben has been involved uh, in Wired's famous uh, UK iPad app and so on. Uh, we're segueing between platforms in more appropriate ways. Uh, we're not forcing people to read or listen just on one platform. Um, we're, we're finally finding ways to comment and discuss about material online uh, in a way that uh, increases the quality of discussion uh, and makes it accessible to people. And of course, at the back end, we're developing new editing tools, of which things like WordPress and so on are the most famous. We're making a very crusty old uh, industry very innovative. Um, and then in construction, again an area which is pretty backward and building, at least in architecture, we're using CAD-CAM to design buildings, to share plans, uh, to work with contractors, to pull down profiles of parts, or windows, doors, etc. that we might use. And in manufacturing, again, both CAD-CAM, although that's not a new technology, 
but now we can send uh, uh, CAD CAM files to a remote place for uh, rapid prototyping and get prototypes of things sent back to us uh, and uh, innovate more quickly uh, uh, as a result. So those are some of the industries. I'll just be one more, one more minute. Um, there are some meta developments I won't dwell on, but I think new models of data input, and Ashley Highfield from Microsoft was talking a bit about this this morning, about haptics, about sensing movement, about voice and so on, perhaps finally becoming a viable input device. Uh, Human-computer interaction, interface design, uh, again, we're a lot better at that than we used to be. The semantic web, well, Tim Berners-Lee has been talking about it for about 15 years now, uh, and the benefits are yet to be seen. Uh, collaboration tools we're doing relatively well in, but I would say at least in the office environment, email is still uh, far too dominant a technology. Um, and then just to pick up on where I think we need to be going, um, the kind of innovations I think we need to be seeing are actually what Niall Murphy was talking about this morning, uh, the Internet of Things, or Everything's as he's branded it, where, with too few vowels, I seem to remember. Those Flickr people, I don't know, they started something. Um, <laughs> Kevin Kelly, uh, emeritus editor of Wired magazine in the US, wrote a book uh, on this theme uh, many years ago and talked about dumb devices, almost analog devices at the end of networks which can sense things. We talked about the Arduino uh, circuit boards and so on, which are a very malleable device. Uh, there's a project called Patch Bay, which allows you to network uh, these kind of devices across the world. I think that provides very interesting possibilities for how we interact with things in our context, if you like, rather than having to go to the Internet. Uh, I think there are new axes we have. Location is obviously one which is now allowing us to find information more effectively and connect with people. Our trusted networks, I don't need to go on about that. Uh, and perhaps our local data, what could uh, artificial intelligence learn by what's on our computer or in our email about our preferences and so on. Uh, and then uh, access to our data. Uh, I learned from a colleague at BT that there's a project finally to allow us to access all the data that corporates gather about us, which we kind of own, and allow us to access it or at least pay other people to optimise it for us and find patterns. Or perhaps we could resell it to people. We could resell our own data uh, you know, for a price. Uh, and then prototyping, I think, is a very interesting area I've talked about uh, in the realm of rapid prototyping, but also prototyping services. The Technology Strategy Board launched a product project called, I think, IC Connect recently, which allows you to prototype sort of media products online rapidly and with content. And what value could London 2012 have as a platform? I know it's awfully close now uh, for experimenting with some of these things in a public way that could set Britain as a network nation in front of the world as a true innovator. Nico, thank you very much. And you are, you are as they say, being the change you want to see. I've never seen... This is an innovation for me, anyway, so I'm actually doing speaking notes from a little handheld thing. <laughs> does, while does it work? That's the question. Well, I think it worked very well. I think it worked very well. Thank you very much. Is there a difference, by the way... Is it worth making the distinction between innovation and invention? Someone yeah. said to me um, recently, I hope this is right, Joseph Swan, if that's the right name, invented the incandescent light bulb. Thomas Edison innovated. He actually made it work. He turned it into a, a commercially viable product. Innovation should imply practical use yes. and, and commercial use, perhaps. Even. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I innovation is finding a, both finding a real-world application, a latent or a real need for something, and finding a way in which it can be uh, commercially delivered and practically delivered to people. It's not just so, a eureka moment. No, yeah. and I think the example, actually, in, in business, anyone listen to In Business on Radio 4? Peter Day, fabulously underrated journalist, uh, talked about... Um, oh, no, it was, it was In Our Time, sorry. Awful mistake. Melvin, Melvin Bragg, also underrated, but not as much. Um, 
the, he, the pro, program last week was about Thomas Edison, and in right. fact, Swan came into that. Swan, okay. the Bromley genius. Edison built a power station on Hope and Viaduct in the heart of, as Bragg or one of the speakers called it, the Imperial Heartland. Mm. And, show, and, and also there was the DC AC uh, thing right. between Westinghouse and, and, and so. But he made a system, right? Swan invented something. Edison made a system in which the invention could live. Right. And he also optimized the filament for the light bulb, which I think was from bamboo or something odd, but famously tested thousands of different products. Fantastic. Um, Richard, we'd better start hearing from you and uh, the Philharmonia, please. Indeed. Um, I think I'm the, uh, and now for something completely different slot in this panel. Um, I'm the head of digital for the Philharmonia Orchestra. And I think the first thing to say is that's probably the innovative thing about us is that we're the only orchestra at the moment that has a head of digital and indeed the digital department looking at ways of taking what is one of the oldest art forms in the world and innovating, changing it for our audiences. Um, in interestingly, the Philharmonia was, was set up as a sort of reaction to technology. It was set up in 1945 to capitalise on uh, the recording industry and vinyl. And the Philharmonia is indeed the most recorded orchestra in the world, one of the five major symphony orchestras in London. So we're not the London Philharmonic, the London Symphony, or the Royal Philharmonic, we're the Philharmonia, and there's the BBC Symphony as well, so I won't even go into that. But Philharmonia Orchestra, I think it's on screens and everything, so you can see who we are. Um, my job is to, to take the experience of an orchestra and find different ways for our audiences to engage with it. Um, and classical music is a niche market and has been contracting um, for years and years. Um, Interestingly, I think it might well correlate, interestingly, with the um, nine million people who aren't yet online. Um, there might be something interesting to do there um, about um, whether we can provide interesting content that is interesting enough that they, they come online. Um, but we've, we've found that our audiences are fascinated by what goes on around an orchestra. Um, so by making interesting content, we can really drive people online to see what an orchestra does and what an orchestra is. But further than that, we've been looking into ways of changing the experience. Um, there's a very sort of traditional way of experiencing classical music. Um, it involves platforms, but of a different type. Um, you sit there and look at one. And we've been trying to find ways of getting people inside the orchestra, experience the orchestra from a different angle, because it's a very complicated uh, machine, essentially. A hundred people doing different things uh, at the same time that somehow comes together and produces um, classical music. So we've been looking at a couple of projects. I've got some slides that may work. Um, back in 2006, we, we built this uh, exciting thing on the South Bank, uh, our play orchestra, which I don't know if anyone saw that. It was there for about six weeks while the festival hall was shut. Uh, and essentially, each one of those white plastic cubes had a speaker in it uh, and a switch in it. And as you sat down on the cube, uh, the sound of the instrument you sat down on would start to play. So if you're there on your own, you could sit down and hear a violin on its own. If you had 59 friends, mm -hmm. uh, you could hear the whole orchestra come together. And we were astonished by how people, well, you can see from that photo, it was open till 11 at night. Uh, we had uh, kids on it in the morning, workers on it at lunchtime. We had a stag party one evening in the <laughs> evening, all dressed as Fred Flintstone. It was <laughs> surreal. Um, but that sense of really being involved in uh, the orchestral performance and getting close to the music, which is something that we really think our audiences value. So last year we, we expanded that idea and made it a bit bigger and made something uh, called Rewrite. We took the orchestra uh, and filmed them playing The Writer's Spring by Stravinsky. It's a pun. 
um, and uh, filmed them with 28 different cameras, um, which was a bit of a logistical nightmare, uh, each camera focusing on one instrument in the orchestra, whether they're playing or not playing. And then we take those 28 films and projected them into a warehouse space on the South Bank, um, which all played back in time, so you could walk from room to room within this warehouse experiencing what it was like to be one of those musicians to hear the sound of that particular section of the orchestra, really get inside the orchestra um, and be a part of uh, that kind of thing. So here's some nice shots of filming sessions. We strapped cameras to players' heads, which was, went down really well, mm-hmm. uh, as you can imagine, uh, and then took this, this space, the barge house on the South Bank, it's sort of halfway between Tate Modern and uh, South Bank Centre, where we're resident at the Royal Festival Hall. Uh, and took this space and transformed it into, um, I hope this works, something nice, transformed <laughs> it into a kind of classical music experience. Um, what was fascinating for us was how people engaged with it completely differently when they could uh, talk during it, walk around, have a coffee, walk out if they didn't like it. And actually, one of the biggest things about digital innovation for me is, uh, I think someone mentioned it earlier, about the technology being in the background, but the technology enabling use of interesting space and use of different technologies to allow people to experience classical music in a different way. So um, I have brought some, I brought the percussion room from Rewrite with me um, for you all to have a play on later on. The percussion room, you get a sort of Guitar Hero style uh, instruction lesson on how to play the bass drum, which um, I think we're doing this at the end of the evening when there are drinks available. I think um, that might be a helpful thing. Uh, it's not official Philharmonia policy that a glass of red wine helps with percussion playing, but <laughs> I think in this case we'll, we'll stick with that. So that's, it's, digital innovation is, is, is not just about the, the new technology. This is actually quite old technology, although it's affordable for an arts organisation to do now. We're, five years ago this wouldn't have been, um, which is something else we can maybe come on to. This is all being freed up for content providers to start to do interesting stuff with themselves without needing a production company, without needing... £50,000 because there's an in-house team available to do it. Um, so that's my point. There's people playing with um, an orchestra there. But um, digital innovation is about more than just the, just the technology. Thank you, Richard. I'll take that Thank from me. Thank you very much. Uh, now, can I ask you the classic, the predictable layman's question about digital and music? But some people will tell you that um, the compression of music, particularly perhaps symphonic music and to digital files means inevitably something is lost. Yes, I mean, uh, there is... We, we were the first orchestra to sell downloads at 320 kilobits per second, <laughs> so the sort of highest quality MP3s, um, before iTunes or anyone else was doing that. So we always had a sort of idea that we want, did want to compromise the sound of an orchestra. Um, and none of these projects, for us, replace... Uh, the live experience either. I mean, that's the key thing. The Philharmonia Orchestra, as all the London orchestras, is self-governed. So there's a managing director, but his boss and my ultimate boss is also the principal trumpet. So um, unless, I want, yeah, unless I wanted to be out of a job, um, I, we need to make sure the concert experience and, and live music making is still happening. This is a, it's an add-on, but it's more than that. It's a sort of add-on that allows you to understand a bit more. So there is a, but there is a problem with compression, uh, but it's getting better all the time. But it also it, it brings you back to live performance, ultimately, as a, as a commercially more attractive, more viable route. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we're one of many Arts Council-funded organisations, uh, and so we have a responsibility to spread our 
uh, income from the Arts Council to the wider possible audience. So it's very important for us that we're not just about closed concert experiences. This project uh, and other things like that are free, so uh, about getting out to lots of people. Thank you very much. I'm now going to hand over the, the zapper of destiny to Lucy, and we hope that things will continue to work, and I'll hand over to you, Lucy. Thank you very much. Okay, um, just before I start, I want to slightly take issue with Nico. I would say that actually any new machine tool being made in Coventry is likely to have many digital components, and really we're at a time where digital is no longer the um, terrain sol solely of the media or the internet. These digital technologies are absolutely pervasive, and that's why, just to lighten up the tone in some ways, I'm showing this slide. I mean absolutely no disrespect by showing this slide. It's simply... The riots are very um, important and difficult, but the language being dis used to discuss everything in our times now shows a pervasiveness of our understanding about all things digital. I don't know if you can actually read what it says, but it says, is this riot your own work, or did you pl plagiarise one you found on the internet? Um, okay, Thames Water, they've had a bit of a bad time with all the burst pipes, and they've turned to Twitter, which they already were uh, working with, to get people to tweet a leak. Um, it's helped them probably overcome some burdensome internal um, communications uh, issues that they face and are communicating directly with their consumers. Um, it looks from afar quite effective, but um, there are many detractors of people trying to do things digitally, and some local councils have been posting rather negative comments about what they're trying to do. I, I think it looks quite um, innovative, and I suppose what I'm going to be saying is the things that are interesting me now in a panel about the future, really how we can work with this very, very pervasive, widely understood technology to make things that we all do better for more people. So I think the future is here, as has been said before, it's just not evenly distributed. Um, my third slide, um, if you can't read it, I'll read out, but it's really about open data and data. Only 50 cents? Well, I guess the real profit's made when you collect, is when you collect my data and sell it to the government. So. <laughs> These things that are quite complicated concepts and sometimes to unwrap are fairly widely understood. And um, I'm just going to talk a bit about two areas that I'm working in, um, one in particular. Um, so, one of the projects I'm working on with Maverick Television um, in the West Midlands, and Johnny from Maverick is here in the audience, is a digital service for the NHS in the West Midlands. They had a very, very far-sighted chief executive who put this project out to tender a little while ago. And um, it's my introduction to public sector procurement, which has been um, interesting. <laughs> and um, what we're trying to achieve is to bring the skills of the digital media sector into the public sector, and particularly into the NHS, to enable staff to talk to the public, public talk to staff, all via... Um, a dynamic website, and this is just a, a sort of a techie diagram to demonstrate um, an ecosystem where we will bring the public sector face to face with the third sector and with patients and with staff. So we, in a, in a small way, we are already doing what um, the rubric of the big society would have us all do. And there are quite a lot of issues you face when you, when you do this. Um, at the moment, I'm not going to, I was going to go live, but I don't have time. At the moment, we're running a consultation on the NHS's information revolution paper. It's going on now. We could go and look at it, but I don't want to use up too much time. Um, so what are, the, what are the challenges that you face when you try and do this really, really important work that many, many people want to do? It's not that people don't want to do it. 
One of the challenges is the procurement process that I talked about earlier on that needs some um, serious reform, and I'm not going to dwell too much on that now. But, but secondly, um, when you're dealing with introducing change in any culture, whether that's the NHS or the government or your own company, you know that um, some people take to change and some people don't. And there are many, many barriers to overcoming change, and there simply isn't an app for that. So what do you do? You have to design change together with experienced people who know about experienced design and service design and design the new services with the customers that we are all trying to reach. And what intrigues me about the moment in which we're living is that there is tons of private money and capital swilling around at the moment, not knowing where to invest itself because banks are no good and various other forms of savings are no good. Uh, not just Mark Zuckerberg's money that he's already announced, he's going to be giving quite a lot away. In fact, the Wall Street Journal last week, when talking about 10 top tech innovators um, in Europe, uh, pronounced that there were five in the UK. We're still doing pretty well. So what is stopping all of these people and uh, these um, investors putting money into creating services that will help the public sector get its work done and be commercialized? I think that probably, if someone manages that, will be the killer app. But that is a, a design challenge, really. So as I've already alluded to, the well, biggest barrier that I, I find when going about this is talking to people. If there's going to be, if you think about boxing and you think about um, a match, in the first round, in a, any battle between culture and introducing new systems, culture will win straight away. I mean, there's, in a knockout, straight away. I mean, there's no two, two ways about it. And so what you need to do is really to find the language and the collaboration tools to work with your people to make change. And there's no app for that. So um, my, my final point, I, I don't know if you can actually turn off my slides, yes, um, is really um, about the period that we're living in. Um, and it's a subject that I do want to do some work in. I'm not doing it yet, which is really about the end of the private conversation. Um, I'm not really just talking about what's going on with WikiLeaks. And by the way, you know, this hearing isn't about cyber terrorism or anything like that. It's an extradition hearing for a man to face charges um, or to do with sexual misconduct. And even in our own media speak today, we're sort of eliding all of these different issues from leaking and diplomacy and counterterrorism to sexual misconduct. They aren't all the same thing, but there are forces at work on all sides that obviously want something to be done to stop what one speaker um, alluded to this morning as the sort of inevitable impossibility that once something is digitized, you can't really do too much to keep it in over time. So there is a battle going on, and in my own life this year, um, a private conversation recorded uh, from a member of my family landed us in a pile of trouble, and I can't really talk about it yet. But with these um, pervasive tools, your iPhone, your friends could be recording you on your iPhone or anything, we really do need to think quite differently about um, what we say and how we say. And if that's related to privacy and trust, well, so much the better. But I'm not sure there are too many systems that are going to protect you or protect oneself from doing that. It's in your own conduct, really, and what you do. And I rather agree with Martha Lane Fox, who said this morning that perhaps one of the effects of this, and not one of the most serious ones, but perhaps one of the effects is to um, encourage sort of better conversation about what's actually going on and to try and be sort of as accurate as possible. Um, and there's no app for that. So I think I'll stop there. Lucy, thank you. It's very interesting. You remind me that uh, both David Treesman, Lord Treesman, and David Young, Lord Young, were both recorded, one sneakily, one less sneakily, 
but with engaging what you might call a private conversation, what they believe to be a private conversation, which suddenly became very public, very dramatically, with uh, rather dramatic effects for, for both. Um, perhaps we can get into this later, but you've clearly got some concerns about the end of, a private, com of private conversations. Do you know I'm married to David Treisman? Uh, no, I didn't know right. that. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't talk about it. <laughs> well, there you are. There you are. There you are. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's a very public moment. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on to Ben. I am David Treisman. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, I, Stop it, you two. Get a room, Jesus. Um, I think um, I'd like to really sum up, you know, it's, I've been sitting here writing notes and things, and, and as it always happens when you're the last person on the panel, you sit there and you're sort of crossing out things as people are mentioning it. You're like, oh, shit, there goes the Gibson quote, right? Okay, good. There goes WikiLeaks. I think the thing I'd like to uh, talk about, the thing that's um, fascinating me the most at the moment is really the societal effect of what we're seeing over the past couple of years, which has been the maturation of the internet and the maturation of these sorts of technologies. Previously, if you're at a, con if you're at a conference like this, or so certainly if we were talking about content or content production, or even things like um, democracy in the age of the internet, something like that, we'd be talking about a work in progress and we'd be talking about things which weren't quite ready yet. Yes, of course, there's hundreds of startups in San Francisco or Shoreditch or even, you know, upstairs here at Channel 4 that have been doing interesting things with digital, but it's only in really in the past year or so that an awful lot of these things have matured into a, into a position where we can start talking about them um, in a, in a, in a grown-up way and not really in a way about, here are these kids who are doing this thing. The effect of that and the effect of the, of the Gibson, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, quote, is really we are right now in the middle of a major sort of clash of civilizations. And I, I'm deeply indebted to a previous speaker to allow me to use this analogy. It's May 1913, I think it was. Um, Stravinsky has his The Rite of Spring opening night. For the educated amongst you, this is an old story, but just carry on with me. It's May, May 1913, Stravinsky and the Ballet Russe are in a theatre in Paris. The opening note, the opening bassoon of the Rite of Spring, which is one of the most beautiful opening notes in the history of music, you know, is played. And Camille Saint-Saëns, who's in the back row, famous French composer, famously goes, No! And runs without the screaming of the hall, out of the hall. By the end of the first movement, there was a riot happening. The audience was throwing punches at each other. They never finished the premiere of The Rite of Spring. Because it was something that was so modern and so new and so different and so shocking that society in 1913 couldn't deal with it. And we're seeing right now, with the WikiLeaks thing, with the 4chan follow-up from this, with all of these other things, that, with, with the destruction of the music industry, with the, with the slow suicide of the newspaper industry, with the flapping about of the television industry, with the destruction of the traveling, with all of the different things that the internet has touched, what we've been seeing over the past 10 years is a, basically the same as the first 10 minutes of the first ever performance of the Rite of Spring. 
It's an awful lot of people not dealing with modernity. And what we've got to deal, what we've got to um, discuss, and for a very short time, is really what we're going to do with all the middle-aged people. <laughs> we've got a generation of boomers who haven't yet retired, haven't yet died, can't deal with the modern world. <laughs> Bit of a thing. You've got a whole generation of kids who are actually perfectly all right. We're going to be fine. You know, we're going to be really, really good. The internet has given us so many amazing things, and we have a whole, at least two generations now of people who are dealing with this in a very, very fine way and are perfectly, perfectly accepting of all of the societal and business and diplomatic and so on um, changes that have happened to the world that have been brought about by the internet in the past 10 years. All of the retired people, they don't really count. It's the guys who are not yet retired and they are desperate to do so that we have to deal with. And it's this clash of civilizations that's happening right now and will happen over the next few years between the maturation of the technology when it ceases to be just this funny thing we can vaguely ignore and the time when all the people who don't understand it get to retire. So the next five years or so are going to be a real problem and every single thing that we see happening in the news over the past few months, weeks and months, whether it's WikiLeaks or something else, have really just been a symptom of old people not dealing. Now, to finish the Rite of Spring thing, in 1914, almost exactly a year later, Stravinsky and the, and the Ballet Russe went back to the same theatre and they put on the same production with the same people. And instead of a riot, there was a standing ovation and Stravinsky was carried on the shoulders of the audience through the streets of Paris and everybody got laid. It was fantastic. What happened in the intervening year? Well, what happened was modernity, the zeitgeist, changed. And people accepted that they either had to accept the new thing and deal with it, or they weren't to go to the theatre anymore. And so what we really have now is an interesting situation of previously when we could have, con we could have um, conferences talking about the internet or talking about digital as being the other as being this thing which was made by other people and was something we could vaguely ignore or be a little bit Daily Mail about, a bit worried. That, the other, is now the reality. And the situation we find ourselves in this very moment is society being shaped by this new way of doing things. But just in the same way as Stravinsky never went away, and is now celebrated as being one of the most beautiful pieces of music of the, of the 20th century, the internet and all the changes that we've seen over the past 10 years are not going to go away. And if your modus operandi is to push against the tide, or is to wish it away, then really you're in trouble and you kind of need to retire. I think we should go on to questions. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> ben, as you make a very good point, Similarly, 1910, the same sort of time, same sort of cultural shift. I think uh, Virginia Woolf declaring that human nature had changed. She'd just been to the post-impressionist exhibition. And there was the, the shock of the new, is the cliché, and then a gradual accommodation. I mean, culture yep. remains dominant until it, until it isn't, as it were. Exactly. And that change can happen very, very quickly. Mm. I mean, almost overnight. Like, you know, Virginia Woolf exactly with the shock of the new, mm -hmm. or with Stravinsky, or with Guernica, or, or with the... Episode one, series one of The Wire, you know. Just shout out there for The Wire. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Uh, 
I've got to look into the Merck to see if hands are going up to ask some, uh, some questions. Um, incidentally, my new book, uh, Conversational Gambits, How to Break the Ice, uh, <laughs> is struggling to find a publisher. There's a, there's a, a hand at the back, if a microphone can uh, get through to it. I would just, I agree with a lot of what the last speaker said. Uh, sorry, Sophie Gunter, EI consultant. But I would say that the existence of Saga would say that the elder generation have, to some extent, hugely, and I'm, by my, I'm young, by the way, um, uh, but the existence of Saga says that the elder generation have embraced the internet to some extent. So I think we shouldn't just write them off for oh, yeah, ages I mean, reasons. We can't write people off chronologically. This isn't Soylent Green, right? We're not, we're, we're not going to sort of, you know, have a cull. <laughs> hmm. That would solve problem. No, I mean, we're not going to have a cull, but I think there is... But, chronologically, but certainly there's a mindset shift that, that, that has to happen. And if it's not going to happen, you know, if, that mindset, if, you, if your mindset hasn't changed, then it is really time for you to, to sort of back out of public life. So it's mindset, not generation? Yeah. No, but uh, there's a, there is a correlation, I would say. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure. I'm going to have some responses from the panel because I sense that I think I'm going to take Lucy first and then uh, Nico. Ah, I'm, I don't need to say anything. Okay, Nico. Uh, okay, well, just on Lucy's challenge to me that uh, Coventry machine tools are very digital, yes, this is true. I think that the problem for me is that, as I say, in our media focused, mediated world, and a world in which the circulation of money and capital is increasingly in our minds, uh, or failure to circulate, uh, we are very, a bit scared of the tangible world, if you like. And I think, actually, we wouldn't have this discussion if we were in Shanghai right now. We'd have a discussion more about the physical, tangible world. And, you know, I'm entirely in favour, of course, of digitally enabled machine tools and so on, which is actually we're not very interested in them. That's the reality, because they're a bit grubby and uh, used by people not like us. Mm -hmm. And to make cars, of which some of us don't approve, uh, not me not being one of them, obviously. Um, on the Gibson quote, um, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. I think that's the difference between invention and innovation, actually. It's in quote, I mean, the future's here for William Gibson, of course, he's a fucking rich author, isn't he? He can buy whatever he likes, like, you know, like Douglas Adams could. Uh, but, you know, the reality is it's not here for the rest of us, and that's the important thing, and that's the innovation question, that's the socialising technology, which is the important mm. thing. Which comes to Ben's point, that actually... And I should have said this, what's innovation for? It's to make our lives better. It's to improve the quality of life for ordinary people across the planet. And that idea of progress, of uh, a continual improvement, a modern idea, as it happens, that us supposedly modern people have, to a large extent, rejected in the guise of climate change, you know, uh, small is good, uh, you know, not wanting to despoil the planet and so on. Actually, you know, that's the real modern idea. The internet... Uh, or at least thinking the internet is changing things is not a modern idea because that put, puts agency outside humanity. And in fact, it was an enlightened idea that in fact it wasn't God that was controlling things, but man, with a capital M, was you know, in control of his destiny and you know, was a problem-solving, intelligent, rational uh, creature and so on. So actually, I, I, you know, and, you know, to the question about, you know, I know you don't really want to cull Ben uh, half the population, but actually I want to make lives better for them and I want to know understand their latent and real needs and how we can use digital technology to create not just digital things that which will make, make their lives better. So I think we, we need to remember who innovation is for and, you know, and actually that human agency, problem-solving, you know, humanistic approach I think is, what, is what's modern. That was a long answer. 
I hope it was. There's a, a question here in the, in the middle of the room. Thanks. Uh, Richard Hollis, uh, Cambridge University Press. Uh, Nick, I was interested by, amongst your list of industries, that you commented that in education, digitally is used least imaginatively. I wondered, Ben, is that simply because teachers aren't dealing with maternity? Because I'm sure their pupils and learners are. Uh, so where's this disconnect, mm. despite all previous government efforts around putting technology into the classroom, interactive whiteboards, learning platforms, vector, and so on? <laughs> you can go first, Ben. Sure. Fantastic. Um, Sorry. The, 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 we, we, we'll we'll share the answer. I think, um, I think putting electronic whiteboards into the classrooms or computers into classrooms is really just like putting lipstick on a pig. In the, the, skills that you need, the skills that the modern world requires now and going forward, if you extrapolate the now going forward, are completely different to the skills that were required 30 years ago. They were completely different to the skills I was taught at school. And so whether I was taught on a blackboard with a piece of chalk or on a whiteboard with a laser pointer or whether I was taught out of a textbook or off an iPad, if it's still the same syllabus and still the same skills that are being taught, they're the wrong skills. Because, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, every job I've done for the past 12 years hasn't existed 10 years before. I would have been completely inconceivable, never mind not existed. And so if we, are take, if we take education as being a, the, a system where we equip the younger generation with skills which will enable them to prosper going forward, and we have, say, 10 years to give them skills that will give them another 20 years of prosper, prosperity, then we're basically making a bet as to what that education is for. And the one thing that we do know about the modern world is that we can't make that bet with any certainty. And so the only rational thing to do with education is to give people skills and not knowledge and not a firm curriculum. Give them skills of, of research. Give them skills of creativity. Give them skills of design thinking. Give them, give them those things. And not just teach the same things we've been teaching for the past 50 years only with something expensive rather than a piece of chalk and a blackboard. Because to be frank, a piece of chalk and a blackboard is a really awesome technology. So let's just do that, if we're going to do that. No. Um, can I come back on that? Yes. Can I just ask if you're the Richard Hollis design writer? No. No, different no, one. Right, oh, very, <laughs> very fine book. Thames and Hudson, I think, not CUP. But, um, I think the problem with education is something my dad has written about, actually, um, back in the day. I think the problem with education is we never discuss pedagogy and we never discuss truth and ideas and knowledge because we're embarrassed about them because we don't believe there is a truth. We don't believe uh, really in an absolute knowledge. We're too relativist. And all the discussion about technology in schools and so on is a way around that discussion, as is the discussion about student fees as it happens. No one's talking about what people get taught in university. They're just talking about how much you pay for it. Uh, and I, you know, I think until we think about pedagogy, rather than saying I think we should teach people skills. I think we should teach people how to think, you know, which is what in good schools we always did. And not just design thinking, whatever that is. Uh, I think we should teach people ways of thinking which are eternal. And you know, school, like kind of polytechnics, are much too practical. I think, you know, my son gets taught PowerPoint, for God's sake. And it's not because I don't like Microsoft. It's just there is no pedagogic value in knowing how to use PowerPoint. It's a discussion we had in art schools back in the day. You know, should you learn Quart Express or PageMaker? I mean, for God's sake. Learn how to design, you know. Learn that in your evening time. 
Get your employer to teach it to you, which is the job of employers to skill you. All right, you know, Central St. Martin should not be teaching, you know, Quark Express skills. Uh, so I just think the debate about education is completely wrong. And teachers are as behind as the rest of us. All right, you know, it's very rare to find... I just think we have, do not have a way of... It's built up about Web 2.0 all the time. We don't understand Web 1.0, which is the idea that information can be in one place and up-to-date and correct, and everybody can edit that bit of information, all right, which is what a wiki is. Well, a wiki is an instantiation of it, not that anyone knows that, uh, apart from people here, obviously, because <laughs> uh, I don't want to insult you. But you know, we haven't even got to that point yet. We're still sending emails to try and plan meetings with people. It's partly because the tools for planning meetings via Outlook are not as good as they should be. Is Ashley still? No, okay. They're rubbish. All right. But, you know, it's not Microsoft's fault. Everybody does it badly. So I think we, you know, it's not just teachers who don't understand the tools. It, it, it's everybody. Uh, Lucy. Just, just very quickly, I know you're concentrating on schools, but it's not just a question for schools. I mean, with the disruptive technology that becomes pervasive, everybody needs reskilling. So even 10 years ago at the BBC, we were needing to retrain researchers about how to do research on the internet. And I, I would suggest that's still a need amongst journalists and other people because uh, data sources from the internet are as untrustworthy, if not more so, more mm. anonymous than others. And uh, that's the kind of digital journey, I think, that people have been alluding to in companies and other things. I'm, I'm not sure it's only to do with a question of age. It is, it is to do with mindset, and it is a transformation. It does require training. And, and Nick is absolutely right. It's how you think about the media, which... You know, even in my career, when I started making stuff for Channel 4, there was the Glasgow Media Group talking about deconstructing the media, and they were the only ones. I don't see them replaced. I don't see the discussion really going on about, you know, how we understand these forces at work with the companies behind them. It, it's just not going on. Uh, I think we've got a news flash from the, the front row, <laughs> from our host. We haven't got oh. a news... We oh. haven't got... I'm not... I, no, I have oh. a question. But the news oh. flash is Assange is in court, and oh. they're trying to stop his um, bail... No, I just wanted to be, ask a, the panel a literal question about digital innovation, what's new now. Uh, ben and I were on a panel a couple of weeks ago where he outlined, I thought, a rather fascinating, I think it was a Nike or an, uh, a Nike grid campaign. Twitter surely <coughs> is a digital innovation of the moment, and indeed so is the campaign to derail MasterCard, Visa and PayPal so can we just have a literal analysis of what is digital, digitally innovative rather than, or in addition to everything else? Who'd like to go first? Right. Ben's going to go first. Yeah, I don't, want to get, I don't want to get bogged down into what's innovation and what's you know, invention and what's new and what's not really new because, because obviously there are lots of things that, where we can always find prior art. So the thing that's happening that that Anonymous is doing against MasterCard and Visa and PayPal and Amazon and all those sorts of things. Dis distributed denial of service attack is about a 10-year-old technology. Um, you know, wikis are 10 years old. Leaking stuff is very is extraordinarily old. You know, thousands of years probably. Um, the, I think, what we have, however, is what is the really innovative thing that's that's happening, is the effect, the mass effect that is occurring through the internet. The fact that previously, if you wanted to do a, a, a denial of service attack on something, it was you and people that you could, you could physically, um, verbally encourage to do something. If I wanted to, you know, riot, 
this afternoon, I would have to sit here and explain to you all precisely why we should go outside and smash windows. And I'd have to be really good at that to get most of you, well, some of you to go and do it. The rest of you probably come along anyway, right? <laughs> but I'd have, to be, I'd have to be quite persuasive. Whereas what the internet's allowing is that sort of persuasion to happen without the physical restraint of us all having to be in the same room. We don't have to gather together in the same underground bar as an anarcho-syndicalist you know, cult to then decide to go and firebomb Whitehall. We can gather together in a chat room or, just, or on Twitter or on a blog or on 4chan or wherever. And it doesn't matter where we are on the planet and it doesn't matter who we are and it doesn't matter what um, resources we have other than that internet connection. And so that um, removal of the physical barrier to entry that post-geographic sort of thing, I think, is a, is a fundamental um, innovation in, in terms of society and something that, we, that government specifically is going to have a really big, a really hard time dealing with because government is obviously based around things inside borders. And when the things that are acting on them don't live within the same world based around borders, then you have a fundamental challenge. And that's the, fun that's the thing about, you know, WikiLeaks really is an Albino-run file sharing service. It's not that big a deal, right? It's just a file hosting service. They didn't do anything with it. They were just, you know, there are thousands of these things. But what WikiLeaks has done is introduced the fact to the wider populace that if you put a digital file up there on onto distributed servers, it's up there. <laughs> and will be up there forever. And no matter how much you whine about it or try and get the Met Police to take it down, it's still up there. And it's going to be up there forever. Mm -hmm. And it's that post-geographic thing that I think is the big deal. Great. Richard, what, tell us the reaction of other big orchestras, if you can, when you told them that uh, you were going to be becoming something called Head of Digital at the Philharmonia. And how did they... Well, did they react like a Lego boxer and try and knock you out in one punch? I think it's um, more the reaction of the, the musicians. I think that's far more interesting, to be honest, because yeah. musicians um, are... Um, apologies to any musicians in the room. Um, slightly backward creatures in some sense. I can say that because I, um, I studied music. Um, but I think the really big shift for us in the last... Probably only in the last 12 months has been the shift around musicians and their copyright and their understanding of copyright. Um, when I started, it was a big deal if I wanted to put a camera into a rehearsal to allow people to see some rehearsal footage. That's totally changed because what you can see from a 28 camera shoot, um, how, how that's different. And the musicians have totally uh, switched into, actually, what can we do to show off what we do on the stage and who cares about our rights for this because actually it's about having audiences for our performances. So I think that's the biggest sort of new thing for us is that musicians coming up with the ideas of how they can make things more accessible. We, we recently recorded the music for um, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows video game. I had to get the title right there. Um, and shot a little film about the recording session for an orchestra for a video game I'm not sure how many of the, of the audience would think about orchestras being involved in video games, but they are. It's a big part of it, and there's a big fan base for it. So two of our players decided that they really felt it would be interesting if they went down to EA Games and had a play on the game in its development stages and found out more about how the music fits in and shared that with the audience. And that's something that's come from the players as something they wanted to do rather than something that came from my head and I had to sort of coerce them into doing. 
and it's that shift of musicians uh, and their feelings about their musical rights, which is a big, a big deal for us. It's very interesting when you say um, cameras in the, in the rehearsal room, it's like when we were doing maths exams and we were told to show our workings and it rather went against the grain that we were supposed to come up with some perfect finished answer, but actually there is credit in showing your working and maybe sharing and opening up as... And it's come from this, from this myth that orchestras that, that, that conductors come in and this magic happens and, and yeah. there isn't actually a whole load of hard work that goes into it, and there is, and I think we've sort of opened that up a bit. Um, yeah. Um, and Lucy, please. Just to get back to Julia's question, as a continuation of this, I mean, ditto cameras in the operating theatre. You know, yeah. I, I think that for... Um, any organisation that has boundaries, whether it's the government or the NHS or, in fact, the BBC where I used to work, um, there was a time before blogging where nobody could say anything about anything. You know, the organisations had three people who could speak upon their behalf. And um, one of the reasons I got the BBC to start blogging was not because blogging was just trendy, was that I would believed it would change the culture of the organisation and enable people to have conversations with their audiences that would be different ditto the NHS and hopefully ditto the government and the civil service. And what does that bring? That, does that bring just the potential to leak? Well, that, that as we know, is old. It, 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 it brings the possibility for people to enter into different relationships, to design things differently, to save money with ideas and to do all sorts of things. And um, although that isn't a literal digital innovation where Julia was asking, I actually believe we have enough technology out there. What's new and innovative is what people are doing with it and what they can do with it because they now have access. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, have to, I have to push back a bit on the whole Twitter thing. Um, I think the, the internet is built up of lots of layers and there were profound innovations which go all the way back to telecommunications through the transistor, the integrated circuit, the design of operating systems and you can fill in the other bits. And Twitter is this very thin layer on top of that. And it's only an innovation in the sense that when you've got a very robust well understood, world, worldwide infrastructure, you can build things very quickly on top of it. That was the whole Web 2.0 premise, if you like. So if you like, it's only an innovation in the sense that we've got platforms that are rolled out. You know, the, the, the innovation was the transistor or the operating system or some such. Yeah, but, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but mm. that's like saying Citizen Kane was just like any other film, only, you know, different, because we had like cinemas and cameras and all this infrastructure to show it. The fact that it's a... The fact that it's an innovation based on a layer of other innovations doesn't take away the fact that within that layer, it's a stunning piece of work. And specifically within the social layer above it, it's even more impressive. I think to, to, sort of, to say that it's not innovative because it's, on, because it's a tiny, tiny thing on top of a whole load of other stuff is, is kind of missing the point. I mean, that's like, it's like saying, well, you know, the Rite of Spring is just so-so because it requires this massive infrastructure which took hundreds of years to, ev to evolve. So well, what? Can, I mean, one of the things we argue in Big Potatoes is that innovation is hard work. And it didn't well, take... Writing the... Twitter's hard work. But, <laughs> but just because it was built on top of lots of other hard work doesn't stop it from being valuable in and oh, of itself. One more point, Stefan. Your analogies don't work, partly because you're talking about creativity, all right, which is you know, Stravinsky and Kane or, or Wells and so on. The rules of innovation and creativity are different. And you can be creative in an innovative new platform, but that doesn't mean you're innovating. I, I think we've got, to, we've got a category error here. Okay, we'll, we'll go to our neutral corners. Um, we're, getting, uh, we're getting metaphysics and everything here. Now, I saw Neil... I'm going to take three in a row. I saw Neil Stewart's hand, uh, and then, t just for neatness, there are two others on that side of the room, and then I'll come back to this side of the room. Um, Neil Stewart from uh, Policy Review TV. 
just to say I've invested a huge amount in the digital revolution and I'm quite optimistic that we'll be able to get it to work. Um, but I'm a bit of a skeptic about what people describe as uh, the impact uh, of it. I'll give you one example, which I do love <coughs> telling now. I was the president of the National Union of Students in 1982 um, when we mobilized 25,000 people and sprayed Michael Heseltine with red paint and tipped over the Archbishop of York's car with him in it, uh, protesting about student loans. We didn't have the internet. We only had the telephone and uh, telegrams. And the other big difference, of course, was that we won. Um, <coughs> so networking, networking has been speeded up, no doubt. Uh, but it's also, uh, for, I was doing a seminar quite a while ago, actually, on the petrol strikes. It also creates the digital mob. Um, and the digital mob actually behaves quite like previous mobs, according to serious policemen who study these kind of things. So I'm slightly at the skeptical end of what is the great innovation. I agree there's new kinds of creative opportunities. Uh, we have speakers at conferences who refuse to have their uh, intellectual property stolen and sold by me, to which point I just say, fine, take it off. And they always come back five minutes later saying they've changed their mind um, because they realize it's fantastic marketing. The biggest innovation, which never gets mentioned, is that so much of this technology works because of innovations in databases. It's the databases that make Twitter fly, not just the technology. It's the databases that make some of the charities so successful and some of them other less successful. It's that side of innovation, how people have figured out to use it. And I still think we're going through quite predictable cycles. Uh, new communities are forming in the same way as they formed at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Learned societies, they broke out of the church, broke out of aristocracy, broke out of hierarchy. We'll get new communities. Uh, they will be dictated to by nation states. Uh, I can't remember when it was, it was about eight or nine years ago when one of the big internet groups thought that they were completely safe and that uh, nobody could prosecute them for having pedophiles on their file servers or anything until Germany just said, well, you're quite right, we can't stop it, but we can shut you down in Germany and that's 10% of your market. What are you going to do now? And of course, that's perhaps what's happening. So it has to connect with the real world. The lucky thing for the internet is that the people that are furthest behind catching up with it are the forces of law and order and civil society and people, Nico, who think that you shouldn't swear when things are being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question at the back and, and then in front of Neil, that's it. Thank you. We'll take the three together. Thanks. Andrea Westall. I'm going to go back slightly further even than, than Neil did because if you go back to, say, when the start of the Industrial Revolution happened, the massive amount of social disruption then the winners and the losers, the social change, etc. There were huge benefits. I mean, any woman in this room is living with both the positives and the negatives of what happened there. Big positive, by the way, the pie. Talk to me afterwards if you want to know why it was the pie. But anyway, <laughs> apart from that. But the point there is that, that whenever I hear anybody sort of like, and Ben, I'm sorry, I came in right at the end. I heard only your presentation. But as though, <laughs> so I'm guessing what everyone said. But I think what Nico picked up on was important that often this is about meeting need. It's back to Marshall McLuhan, you know, the medium is not the message. And the danger is that, that within this debate you get too many people, particularly those who tend to be older, who go on to as though, hey, I'm with everyone, everything is new and innovative and wonderful. Hey, it meets need or it doesn't. It's not just about it being trendy and you take it up. It either meets need or it enables you to do stuff you couldn't do before. 
So I think I completely disagree with Virginia Woolf saying human nature changes. It doesn't. It stays the same. And you could argue that modernity actually disabled us from a whole set of ways of relating that um, you could argue that some of the digital has allowed us to recreate and redo. So economics, classic example, became through modernity dislocated into this abstract way of thinking, completely separated, and look what's happened and where we are because of that. Okay. It matters about how you now learn with all of that. It matters about um, the links between people. And just sort of to ask the question, also, what are the unintended consequences of some of the innovations? Because we need to be aware of those at the same time as we kind of go with the benefits. Thank you, Andrea. And I, I would have... Yes, why not? I would have uh, recognised you too. I'd have been able to see in the dark, which would be an innovation. Paul Sloan. I, I write and speak on innovation. And um, great panel, by the way. Terrific discussion. I'd like to congratulate you. Very, very interesting. Um, but as a representative of the ageing baby boomers in the room, I must take issue with Ben. I can't let, it was a very provocative and outrageous uh, statement, and, but I, I must um, refute it. Um, Baby boomers who are in positions of power absolutely get the internet. Bill Gates, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs are all baby boomers. They're the ones who are making a fortune out of the internet and modernity. Um, so uh, blaming them, uh, the WikiLeaks thing is not about the internet. The internet is simply an enabling technology. It's about whether private conversations should be revealed and whether that's beneficial or disadvantageous for society and people in power. Mm -hmm. It's not really about the internet, though the internet is a fantastic enabler for releasing a fantastic amount of information. Uh, but other than that, uh, great um, discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we had some scepticism from Neil Stewart. We had some, also some more and some questions about unintended consequences and perhaps the, I want the separation of technology from people and real needs, right? And, uh, and then just a, a rallying cry for uh, more mature members <laughs> of our community. Who wants to uh, respond in any way? Um, Richard, come on. I just want to say something about the, the, the marketing of the innovation. I think that's, uh, that's a, a key thing. People um, of my parents' generation keep saying to me, should I be on Twitter? I should be on Twitter. Yes, I should be on Twitter. <laughs> and they don't know why, and they don't know where that comes from, and they don't know even what it is. Um, and I think there's a lot about, yes, there is meeting need, and that certainly is a way, uh, to, that is one of the key, the key points of in, digital innovation. But there are also lots of things that have come to the fore that have been marketed extremely well. Um, and just returning to the right of spring, the, the riot at the premiere was in part at least caused by Diaghilev, the promoter, sitting the, the modernists next to the old guard deliberately <laughs> each other's seats so that they would hate it and cause a fight and there would be a media stir uh, back in 1913. And that's, there's something to be said about, about you know, the, the, the sort of angry anti-technology press against uh, you know, magazines like Wired and causing a fuss about technology which which then brings it to people to actually start playing with it and using it. I, I agree with Neil, apart from him telling me not to swear, um, which was a considered thing, particularly about Neil Gibson. Uh, um, I think you're right about the databases, not a particularly new technology, it's about 30, 40 years old, but uh, they are underrated because none of us know how to program a database. Um, and I think there's a, there's a sort of broader issue here, really, which is about social trends and human nature changing, which is the point that Andrea Westall made. I think... If we believe that technology changes society, that it's the agent in society, we might as well all go home because there's no point discussing anything. We might as well just wait for the deus ex machina to have its effect. 
And when we talk, we've got to be very, I think we should be wary when we're talking in language that implies that technology changes society. There is a dualistic relationship captured by many people, not least Churchill, when he talked about, you know, we shape our buildings and after that they shape us. But, you know, the first part is we shape them. We are, as I said, problem-solving, you know, uh, directed beings, if you like. Uh, and I think the point about student riots is very interesting, actually. You know, what, what, are the te- what are the social trends which are pushing technology adoption? And the students writing in Parliament Square would take time out of writing to tweet about it because they know that nothing happens unless it's mediated or it's in the media. You know, the media now shows a demonstration. You can have one person with a very good get-up on it. When I went on CND demonstrations in the early 80s, if you got 250,000 people, you got on page six of The Guardian at best, all right? Now you can have one well-designed Greenpeace. You know, that is the way... So the things that are driving us are very different today, and they are what are forcing the adoption of new technologies, not the other way around. OK, Ben, and then a couple more questions, I think. It's, um, it's very important, you're right. It's very important not to... Um anthropomorphized technology as being this separate thing that happens to that happens to uh, that happens to us because obviously technology is created by people it's used by people the way it's interpreted comes from human nature and all that sort of thing but what you also have to remember conversely is that is that technology is new technologies are not evenly distributed. And so the world can be fundamentally changed by a small group of people using a technology that the largest, that the majority of people are not using. And though that majority's life is then transformed by the use of technology, by somebody else's use of technology. So whether you want to abstract away it being technology, whether it's innovation or creativity, or whether a database is a technology and a technology is not innovation, or any of that, it kind of doesn't really matter. Because at the end of the day, stuff is happening out there that is being enabled by these new inventions that are happening, that are, that are being invented by people. And that stuff is, is being used by a small group of people. And the effect of that use is much wider than any other form of technological or social or intellectual innovation that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Whether you're talking about, and and in a much shorter time, whether you're talking about the Renaissance or the Industrial Revolution, the Renaissance happened for about 300 people in Italy, like the Medici and their friends. The Industrial Revolution took 100 years. The internet in the public sphere we've had for about... 500 weekends, more or less. And yet right now, every single industry that you're a part of, every single aspect of your life, every single aspect of public life, every, every single aspect of international relations, every single aspect of our health, of our education, of our social life, everything we do as a human being has been touched by this technology, which has only been in the public sphere for like a blink of an eye. And so to say that it's not tech, that it's Everything's about people and not about technology is true, but the people who are using that technology are using it and doing really big things, and we can't separate the two out. And to do that is just no intellectual. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay, so we've got Di, okay. there's a question there, and one there. That'll be it, our last three questions. Um, Thank you. Di Burton, Cicada Communications. I'd like to move away from the social impact to the economic impact at the end of the day, you know, we're in business to make money. And, and So, Richard, 
this uh, digital work you've been doing with the Philharmonia, what difference has it made to your bottom line? To our bottom line, it's difficult to say. It's about, for us, it's about maximising the value of the people who are investing in us, our sponsors, the Arts Council, and getting their money invested in the orchestra to the widest possible audience. If you just look at orchestral concerts, um, our managing director says he just finds innovative ways to um, lose more money um, in terms of putting on more uh, interesting concerts. Um, the number of seats in a concert hall times by the amount people are prepared to pay for them doesn't pay for the orchestra and the conductor and the soloist being on the platform. That just doesn't work for us. So for us it's about in what ways can we fill that gap in order that we don't have to do what is done elsewhere in the world and put the seat prices up so that no one can afford to, to be there. Um, so the digital aspect of it, while it doesn't bring in a huge amount of money, though it is starting to in, in um, the, the rewrite installation, we're touring uh, out to to uh, Lisbon next week, so um, you know, there's an income stream coming from projects like this, um, but it actually just allows the orchestra to have a better profile, to attract new audiences, to attract new sponsors, new partners. Um, we're working on a, another installation piece at the moment, um, anyone in the room wants to come in and, and invest in that and then just let me know. Um, but it's about, for us, it's about uh, expanding our audience and, and uh, making better value for the people who are already investing in us, rather than uh, improvement on the bottom line. So some difference is the answer. Uh, um, the question there. Yeah. Um, Christian, I want to push back a little bit on the maturation question because while the technologies have matured, what it's enabled us to do is to create an era of business model experimentation. And I think that's the really question. The, the question is how long is it going to be before we know which models work? Now, just if you look at the valuations of the Web2 companies now compared to their revenues, they're actually wider than the dot-com bubble was when it burst <laughs> in 2000. So an assumption that this is a mature, sustainable model, uh, I think is really rather dodgy. And the problem is um, the, the the, we've got this argument that it lowers barriers of entry. Well, how come we've got market domination in virtually every sector by one or two players globally? You know, whether it's a Google or an eBay or an Amazon. Actually, what we're finding is that free at the point of entry creates monopolies and well-funded monopolies. We've seen what happened. The thing that worries me about WikiLeaks is Amazon's decision to not host them because um, the arguments there that somebody can close them down actually is quite frightening and anti-democratic. So it strikes me that the real issue here is, is it a one or two year modernity till we know the model, right. or are we going to have 30 or 40 years before we have? Because if it's the latter, we've got a lot of problems that we're going to have to try and solve. Thank you. That's a great question. You may be interested to know that your comments provoked some vigorous nodding from Benjamin Cohen in the front row from Channel 4 News. Uh, and there was another question right by you, and we'll take that and then, and then finish. Yeah, from the panel. Uh, Alex Simmons from Smithfield. Thank you. I've enjoyed the sparring. Um, <laughs> I guess, looking relatively near term, the piece that I, as I look at the screen, what's new now, don't feel I've captured, is what is it that I'm going to know in June next year that would be useful for me to know now? So we've got sort of stock tipping in two different ways in this last round of questions. Who would like to... Um Dive in first. Ben, ben would like to dive in first. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to answer both those questions at the same time. Yes, actually. Brilliant. Um, have we got maturation in business models? No. Will we have maturation in business models ever? No. Deal with it. Sorry. 
<laughs> I, think that's the, I think that's the fundamental change that's happened, is that everything has been thrown up in the air, and it's not going to come and settle back down again for three generations, probably longer. It, does that cause us problems? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Is that something we're going to have to deal with? Yeah. Oh, well. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think post-1989, I mean, pre-1989, well, 1990, yes, 1990, Germany was reuni reunified in October 23rd, something like that. And on Christmas Day, 1990, the first web, web server was turned on. At that, literally at that moment, we had the modern world was born. And before that, everything was really easy. It was black versus white, it was us versus them, you know, it was very simple. And we've just had exponential complexity build up from then to today. And it's only going to get worse. So to deal with the education point and all of that is we just have to prepare ourselves for the fact that it's only going to get more weird. If you, look, if you talk to any science fiction author at the moment, science fiction authors are, t are totally screwed. <laughs> because they're all sat there. I mean, Gibson is a good example of this. Gibson, William Gibson novels are all set in the modern day. Because if you talk to him about it, he says, well, like, our job used to be extrapolating out the future. If we extrapolate out the future now and we take it to our publishers, they laugh at us because it's like the, nothing could be sufficiently weirder than today. And so uh, when I talk about, you know, the boomers not dealing with it, what they're not dealing with fundamentally isn't, you know, Twitter or how they log into Facebook or what Gmail is or anything. It's not like they can't operate browsers. Well, they, I think the fundamental philosophical problem is weirdness. It's just there's a generational gap between people who don't remember it being ever, ever you know, people, people for whom it's always been weird and it's going to get more weird and people who remember when it wasn't quite as weird and wish it, wasn't, wish it was like that again. <laughs> And so I think we're always going to have this, this sort of fundamental problem. And in terms of, uh, so in terms of things like you know, weird business models, I was in San Francisco all of last week. And I can, it's getting really weird. <laughs> I mean, seriously, very, very strange indeed. I, was, I, met, I went to an incubator. You know, an incubator is like a, a venture capitalist, but for very, very small companies. I met this guy. He ran a pre-team, pre-idea incubator. You went to him and said, oh, I don't know. And, they, and he said, here, have some money, make a cool thing. <laughs> he's, in his, like, he's funded like 40 people. He's got 10 companies out of this thing. Right? Weirdness abounds. And so that's the fundamental thing to take away. So the takeaway, really, what do you want to know? In, what should you know in June that you should know now? It's just going to get really weird. Yeah. And if, if, if you want to bet on anything, bet on just weird. <laughs> It's, it's an investment strategy. Uh, it's enough to make your moustache curl. Uh, Lucy. Um, two people have said something similar to me, and they put it slightly differently. Um, I'm obviously a complete newcomer to the public sector, and trying to understand the NHS internally is quite weird. And someone who has been um, in government and in Number 10 and a special advisor said, if you're doing anything with the NHS um, and you're designing something, just design for something that is continuously changing, change without end. Secondly, talking to somebody else really about um, um, the future, he used to be at BT and he's now elsewhere, JP said, um, design for loss of control. Now, this may not mean too much to everybody, but um, 
if you're thinking about you know, the state of flux in the UK and in the world and your business and business models, then uh, there's a ring of truth about both of those things, which echoes what Ben has just said. It, it, it's hard to pin down, and I think that's part of the discomfort that, well, I don't think quite a lot of people are living with. Okay. Last are, we, are we summing up here? Yes, please. Uh, so on the question about what we, uh, what we should be looking at for next June, I, I do realise I've been a bit light on that front. Partly because I actually I think that we should be thinking about what the problems are we have or the opportunities we, are, we have, which we can define independently and then think about whether digital technologies are valuable in solving them. And they're not valuable in solving a lot of problems. We've talked about a number today. I think education and politics are two of them, where the, the problems are elsewhere. Uh, and we need to think about what kind of world we want to create, and, and we need to think about whether we have a positive view about the future. And uh, sadly, in the UK at least, we're increasingly dystopic. Uh, we don't have many positive science fiction or other views of the future. Uh, I agree with Chris Yap that we're in a period of experimentation in business models. We just need to remember in a, a big potatoes fashion that business models themselves are not really innovation. They don't themselves make the world a better place. They just facilitate other better things that we want to do. Um, I profoundly disagree with Ben, uh, whoever said the discourse is over, uh, about change. Uh, if you had lived 300 years ago during the enclosure movement and you'd been a Scottish peasant or an English peasant and you'd been forced into what became Manchester by the enclosure of your land, you would have really known what change was and it's much more dramatic than anything that we're experiencing at the moment. Uh, and I'm not in favour of dramatic change per se, we just need to know what it is. If you'd lived 100 years ago when our grandparents and great-parents parents were alive, when the automobile, radio, uh, modern pharmaceuticals, uh, mass industry, uh, you know, you know long-distance travel, etc., were all born, you know, that was change across all aspects of society, whereas today we see change in information, communication, technology and media broadly and, and a bit else. Um, I think the question about how does change happen, you sounded rather Margaret Mead-like in your comments, you know. Uh, you know, a few people with a well-organised can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has, etc. I, I don't agree with that, actually. And I'll quote Jim Morrison, a much more frowned commentator than <laughs> Margaret Mead, who said, they've got the guns, but we've got the numbers. And how well-armed with technology uh, the people against us are, if they're against us, uh, our failure to cooperate or our active resistance, at least as well as well-organised, will always triumph in the long term. Um, that's it. And Richard, any closing thoughts and feigning that? Some con have, conf yeah. concert dates for us, please. I have to sum up everyone else's summaries, which is <laughs> a, a bad position to be in. Um, but uh, these far more intelligent people have said this um, ahead of me. But I think um, if I knew what was going to be uh, the right thing to know in June, then it wouldn't be the right thing to know in June. Um, uh, I think not knowing is, is absolutely fine, um, especially if you're in this position on the panel. So... Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. It's only going to get weirder. Thank you for listening, and please thank the excellent panel.